Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Claire, a GP with a special interest in menopause based in North London. Together we are the Menopause Sisters and we're here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. Hello and welcome to the Menopause Sisters show with myself, Caroline, and my sister, Dr. Claire. And we're delighted to welcome Dr. Ruben Nyman today, who's a psychologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arizona, Andrew Will Center for Integrative Medicine. And he specializes in sleep and dreams. And this is something that we know can be particularly troubling around the time of perimenopause and menopause. So we wanted to speak to somebody who had a very special interest and information about sleep. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruben, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. So I thought maybe we could perhaps begin with what is sleep? That, I guess it's a million dollar question. Yeah, it's it's a billion dollar question. <laughs> you know, it's a question that's rarely asked, which is interesting. There, there, there's so much concern about getting to sleep and getting good quality sleep and staying asleep. And uh, we forget to, to really address the fundamentals. Um, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know when you get there? And, and that, that question actually has a lot of relevance to how we deal with sleep. So when we step back and look at definitions of sleep and definitions professionally, definitions on the part of just ordinary people, it turns out that we consistently define sleep negatively. And and what I mean by that is we define it in terms of what it's not. We do this with health. Right? It's very common that when you ask people, what does health mean? They'll, they'll describe it as not being sick and not being diseased, you know, uh, or they use a synonym for being well. But um, that's what health is not. And when we ask what is sleep, you'll hear things like, well, it's not consciousness. It's not awareness. It's not waking. And, and the technical term in the field of sleep medicine for, for true sleep, deep sleep, is non-REM. What is sleep? It's not dreaming. And, and we walk away thinking, oh, yeah, we got it. But we don't. And, and the obscurity around the definition is, is really a critical underlying issue that prevents us from a better understanding and better access to sleep. Uh, when we think of sleep as being not waking, we we inadvertently try to get to sleep by leaving waking, right? Um, Rather than going to sleep. Um, This always reminds me of a classic Beatles song, um, Golden Slumbers, probably before your time, but in the early 1970s, Paul McCartney found the lyrics to this, uh, written by Thomas Decker 300 years ago. It was a lullaby. You, You know the song? Golden Slumbers. And and it begins with an interesting lyric. You know, once there was a way to get back home, once there was a way to get back home, sleep pretty, darling, do not cry. I'll sing a lullaby. But the notion there is interesting. And historically, people looked at sleep differently. It wasn't simply about leaving waking, not being awake, not being awake. In, In this case, metaphorically, poetically, it was a way to get back home. It's very interesting. So sleep was a place. It was not just the absence of waking. And and I should say, I'm writing now about a concept uh, that I call wake centrism. Um, You guys maybe are familiar with the the old movie, The the Matrix. Uh Yeah. Well, I I think we actually live in in a kind of consciousness matrix. I call it the wake-trix. We think, we believe, without ever examining it, that that this consciousness that we share right now, this waking consciousness, is 
the gold standard for life, that this is it. And anything outside of this is really secondary and subservient to waking. We look at sleep and dreams that way. You know, if you look at all the research around sleep and dreams, researchers sit down with sleep and dreams and say, hey, yo, how can you make us better waking people, right? And, and sleep and dreams are affirmative about that. You know, they'll improve our immunity and, and our performance and our memory and on and on, on all these good things. But the presumption that the only reason we sleep or dream is to be better waking people um, is something we need to question. So we're, we're caught in the matrix. It's like flat earth consciousness. Um, and, and we're admonished not to go near the edges because we'll fall off. And that's a big problem because to get to sleep, one has to not only leave waking, recognize that waking, there's more to waking, but also be willing to, 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 to take a bridge to another state of consciousness. So I'll say that I think the single most problematic issue in getting to sleep in our world, in the Western world today, is that we have forgotten the critical role of dreaming. The bridge between waking and sleep is not sleepiness. Uh, People get stuck there. They get stuck at that gateway or the bridge of transition. They can't fall asleep at the beginning of the night or the middle of the night. Because what they do is when they get stuck there is they try to utilize and leverage waking. Oh, my God, I can't sleep. I'm going to get to sleep, you know. And he has a, a thousand different thoughts, you know, what caused it. But then I, it's no. Um, but we get caught in waking because we think that's all there is. Um, when we begin to leave waking, um, even, even, even in the middle of waking right now, we, we can actually venture into um, more of a dreamy consciousness. Now, we don't necessarily like that in our world, right? But even, even with small kids, you know, we, we, we kind of complain when they start to, to disattend or daydream or we call it ADD. But we have to be willing to expand consciousness to consider that, that, that the world of consciousness is not flat, that we can step into uh, really mysterious ways of being. Uh, there's a couple of points there that I, I want to pick up on, actually. Um, I guess the first one is this this idea of this dreamlike state you're just talking about and, um, and dreams themselves. And my, my understanding of dreams has always been that it's, your, I guess, your mind, your body processing whatever's come up, whether that's that day or the conversations you may have had, experiences you may have had. They may be, uh, it might be a process from your past as well. And it, am I kind of around the the right the right thought process there? Yeah, I think I think that's that makes sense and it's valid. I, I would say it's it's also incomplete. Okay. Uh, our scientific understanding of dreaming comes mostly from the study of REM of rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye movement sleep it, it cycles through the night, increasing more and more as we get into to, to early morning. Um, and we know a fair amount about that. And we know that it, it does process, I would say it digests difficult to digest the waking life experiences. It breaks them down and makes them a part of our being. It makes them part of who we are. Um, there, there is, um, I guess what I would call anecdotal evidence uh, in, in another field, in the field of dream work, which is different than REM sleep, that suggests that dreams can also be transpersonal. Now, there's literature about this that goes way, way back. And uh, I, I'm a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. 
And we, um, we are a very quirky global group, uh, which includes top scientists from university around the world studying the brain during dreaming. Uh, we have shamans from Peru. <laughs> we have a whole range of people, people who do art around dreaming. When you look at dreaming in that way, um, when you consider it is another valid state of consciousness, um, we begin to find evidence of transpersonal dreams that I'll give you an example. Um, there, there's there's um, an interesting group of people collecting dream work. Actually, these are these are dream circles of women only around the world. They've been going on for decades. And in the, in the months before 9-11, um, numerous women from around the world reported and, and documented dreams about airplanes flying into skyscrapers. This is a month before. It was the August before. We, we have all kinds of information like this. What do you make of that? Is it coincidence? And, you know, who, who knows? But uh, my experience, too, in doing dream work for over 40 years is that um, – there's just a lot of mystery in it. Well, anyhow, it, it, it is what it is. And, and I think one of the reasons we, we, don't, um, we don't get how important dreaming is to sleep is I think we're, we are afraid of dreams. I, I think we, as a Western world, are actually frightened of the depths of ourselves, of our own unconscious. Uh, some of this goes way back. Um, I don't know if, if in the UK you guys use the phrase, beat the devil out of you know that phrase? Yeah. yeah. So that actually was derived from Christian child-rearing textbooks over 300 years ago. And the notion was very, very common that, that children were born with demonic influence and you had to beat the devil out of them. Um, you know, fast forward centuries to Freud, um, we've all been influenced by, and Freud believed that, that the core of the personality, he called it das S in German, we translated it in, in, to the id, right? And the id is the core of the personality for Freud, and it's this repository of really repugnant impulses, you know, terrible stuff he wanted to do. Again, two examples historically, but it's still impacting us, um, about how we can't trust what's deep inside of ourselves. When we dream, that's what comes up. The unconscious comes up or the underconscious comes up. And, and um, so I, and, and I'll add to that, um, I, I did a paper five years ago now for the, the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. It was a re research review paper. And what I discovered was that there, there's really compelling evidence that we as the Western world are dreaming less and less and less. And, and not only the quantity, but the quality of our dreams is, is really compromised. And so for me, what that does is it, it closes consciousness down. We're living in smaller and smaller worlds, flatter and flatter worlds. Um, and this is true for virtually all of us because the way we do lifestyle, so many aspects of contemporary lifestyle dramatically suppress our dreaming. And that's sorry, I just wanted to pick up on that actually, Dr. Rubin, because that is really fascinating that we are dreaming less at the moment. And and that's something that's, you know, in, in many ways quite restorative sleep. I guess that's a very basic way of looking at it from a, a Western medical doctor's point of view. But mm -hmm. actually what what does that mean in terms of our sleep and our sleep cycles and perhaps even our health if we're dreaming less if we're not getting that and i i i, I use it inverted commas because it's probably the wrong thing to say but good sleep what is good sleep 
Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us? It's an important question. You know, um, when we think of sleep, we, we often don't think of dreaming. I'm a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and I've argued for years we should be the American Academy of Sleep and Dream Medicine. Mm-hmm. It's it's so common. Most of my colleagues know nothing about dreaming. They know a bit about REM sleep and disorders of REM sleep. You know what's going on in the brain, uh, but but there's a denial. Um, and this is true in the way we practice science and medicine. There's a denial of phenomenology of subjectivity. You know, we really think what's important uh, really is limited to what we can measure in terms of brain and behavior. Those things are critically important, but. It turns out that much, possibly most, of what we call insomnia is actually dream loss. And we need to call it what it is. And and, and both sleep and dreams, they're they're complementary. Different good things happen in both deep sleep stages and REM sleep stages. But we've known for years, and, and I'll just summarize some of this, that poor quality dreaming is associated with mood disorders. In fact, it's one of the, the, the most common profiles at night in sleep of mood disorders is we get this reduced REM latency. People who are clinically depressed and have anxiety disorders, actually in their sleep, they look like patterns we find in human and animal studies where there's been a selective deprivation of dreaming. So in, in my training years ago, we, we referred to depression as a loss of one's dreams, and there's a literal underpinning to this. If we don't dream well, we're not, we're not processing, we're not digesting and assimilating daily life experiences. We're not getting nourishment from our daily life. It is the counterpart. It's kind of a psychological indigestion or a psychological constipation, if you will. We're just not absorbing those nutrients. And, and that's, I think, what clinical depression is. is there's a freeze quality, ironically and terribly. Um, Most of the medications we use, uh, most antidepressants, the vast majority of them significantly interfere with dreaming. Um, And and there's there's an assumption uh, in, in the pharmacology of understanding depression that depression is associated with pressure to dream. And and it is. That pressure to dream can cause uncomfortable symptoms. But we we need to to step back and ask ourselves, why is there a pressure to dream? It's because it's it's not because the dreaming has gone awry. It's because we've denied the dreaming. Our posture toward depression. Here's a parallel. Uh, It's the way we approach depression is like saying um, a fever causes an infection. So depression is kind of a psychological fever that results from the loss of REM sleep. In its wisdom, the brain and body's attempt to restore REM sleep is mistakenly seen as the cause, not a symptom of the depression. In fact, it's endogenous healing. I think if we follow that, the body and brain is trying to restore REM sleep, but um, it's like a fever is trying to restore health, but we, we combat it. So we, we need to dream more. Uh, we need to let ourselves dream. Part of healing our sleep is healing our dreaming. And here's the other thing. When we fall asleep at the beginning of the night, we go through what's called a hypnagogic process. These are not ordinary uh, sort of uh, coherent REM dreams, um, but, but they're kaleidoscopic. Most of us have experienced this. You're falling asleep and these images come and sometimes there's sound, sometimes there's a face, there's a color. Um, and, and there are different ways of understanding it, but it's, it is a dream. 
we're actually going through a brief portal of dreaming that's taking us, the ego is leaving consciousness, taking us into the, into the depths of sleep. We're diving down through the waters to the bottom of sleep. So dreaming occurs here. We have data that looks at why people awaken in the middle of the night, which is the most common insomnia, and of course so common with, with menopause. Um, it turns out that most of those awakenings are associated with the advent of REM sleep. So the dream might not yet be there, but we can kind of, we, we can hear, hear a stampede in the distance, or we can feel a rumble. There's something coming, there's something quickening, and we wake up. And we typically are waking up out of REM sleep. Um, Shakespeare, right? We've got two UK references here. To sleep, perchance to dream. You know, people don't want to dream. They're afraid of their dreams. Um, I think that's fascinating because I can see it in relaxation at the end of a yoga class. I can see it in the, the longer relaxations or yoga nidra, I call it yoga sleep. I can see that um, perhaps angst or nervousness particularly for those who haven't done it before but even those that practice it regularly and there's a there's a class i often teach on thursday night and you know some some weeks there's a good nine to ten minutes of relaxation at the end if if i've got my timings right and it's fascinating watch those that drop into that conscious rest quicker and those that are just never there you know as soon as i ring my bells to come out they're out they're banging they're out and they haven't quite dropped down and there's there's so much that could surround that whether that's you know just being in a studio space not feeling particularly safe or just not that sense of letting go but what what you've been describing ruben's been fascinating because there's that element of allowing yourself almost to let go allowing yourself this kind of surrender i often say giving yourself permission to rest whether that's during the day or at night um yeah surrender to 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 what what you're describing i'm very familiar with and in psychology we see this not only with yoga nidra or relaxation practice says we see this in in hypnotherapy sometimes it's called an ab reaction stuff just comes up that's been kept at bay so you know on Jung would call this the waking dream which is a beautiful concept. It, it doesn't segregate and limit dreaming to REM sleep. Dreaming is most obvious in REM sleep, but we can get into a dreamy state. And I think we do when we get creative, when, when we get romantic, we get intimate, we get poetic, artistic. I think all of that, and people do it in their own way, is, is allowing us to venture into a, a grander, more expansive, more permeable consciousness. By the way, speaking of permeability, it's interesting in the dream, you know, there's so much emphasis in, in medicine, in integrative medicine today, about body-mind oneness. And um, I, I think it's overdone, frankly. Uh, you know, the, the, the body is the body, and it's, it's of the material world. It's matter. The mind is not. And I, I look at the body and mind as, as a mixed marriage. And the reason I say that is when we're in REM sleep, something really interesting happens. Um, we lose muscle tone. You might know this. We, you know, we become you know sleep paralyzed, if you will. But but it's sort of like the the mind leaves the body. It's an out of body experience. And when the mind is no longer metaphorically in the body, it's capable of doing things it can't do in the body. Right now, I'm limited to to the senses in my body, my eyes, my ears, and so on, or the, the muscles, the movement. But if I'm out of body, suddenly I can fly. 
I can see around corners. My sense of self becomes really permeable. I can be me. I can be you. I can be other in a dream. I can be here. I can be there. There's early research showing that people who dream well are more empathic, which makes so much sense because we're, we're spending time in greater permeability. So, so the... And, you know, historically, we'd say the soul leaves the body, but whatever it is, not vice versa. From the perspective of the body, <laughs> dreaming is an out-of-mind experience. So the mind, which rides the body day all day, right? Um, executive function, we're talking about pre, you know, prefrontal cortex. Executive function really dominates lower uh, limbic-type hippocampal functions. What happens in dreaming is fascinating. It's disconnected. There's a disconnection between executive function and lower bodily function. And the body does a really interesting thing. We call it uh, autonomic nervous system storms. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but but basic functions get really erratic. Uh, Respiration is is up and down. Heart rate is up and down. Core body temperature. And and sleep medicine has baffled us for years. In fact, a prominent sleep doctor once said, during REM sleep, this is a quote, he said, all hell breaks loose. (laughs) It's an interesting bias about dreaming. It's not hell. What happens when the mind leaves the body is the body goes whoopee and it shakes itself out. It's almost like it's a re-regulation. The other thing that happens independently of the mentation in the dream, men get erections and women lubricate. The body goes whoopee. (laughs) The mind is gone for a while. So I think in this mixed marriage in REM sleep, there's a need for time apart. There's definitely a need for time apart. When that doesn't happen, I I think there's sort of a a psychological, a biomedical codependence. There's an entanglement that happens. The mind has to feel free to leave the body. The body has to feel okay about giving up that, that executive function. And I think that's that's a really interesting concept because I I often speak to perimenopausal or menopausal women who obviously have had sleep disruption and that kind of manifests in in a variety of ways. You know, it can be waking at three or four o'clock in the morning and catastrophizing and not being able to sort of, you know, get back into a restful sleep. But many, many women say that they stop dreaming, Mm. that their dreaming ceases when these hormonal fluctuations occur and it's when you kind of replace those hormones or treat them um with alternative treatments perhaps that they start to dream again i had a woman today who said i've started to dream again Mm -hmm. and it's just a fascinating process because it's not necessarily just about hormone replacement therapy but there's something there that's just triggered the mind body interaction and has just flipped them back into a into a deeper sleep and an REM sleep but you know I I don't understand that yes I put that down to HRT but there's probably it's a bigger picture there isn't there so so, some of this if we get a little more detail also relates to melatonin and there's a lot of misinformation about it I, I know melatonin is highly regulated around the world ironically it's not in the U.S. because it's some uh, some of our FDA Food and Drug Administration laws, but um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about melatonin. The pharmaceutical industry does not like it. Uh, there is substantial evidence that it can work, although it's just not simple. And my experience is most people who use melatonin use it um, inappropriately. 
They take too much. They take the wrong kind. A lot of it is produced in China, raises questions about quality. Um, we need sustained release melatonin because it has a very short half-life. So if you use properly, uh, I think of it as melatonin replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a neurohormone. And most of us need that. Most of us are so overexposed to light at night. And even small amounts of light at night really send a signal to the brain that, that it's summertime. These are long, long days. Um, exposure to that kind of, of light over years probably is a factor in, in um, changing the onset of menses in young girls. You know, for years we've seen them start earlier and earlier. There was some research years ago that showed that melatonin, using melatonin could delay the onset of perimenopause. So again, there's a lot we don't know, but it can be useful if used intelligently. Um, in summary, small dose, maybe a milligram or less, Time release is really critical because of its short half-life. And, and to use it consistently. Melatonin, by the way, is less of a soporific, less of a sleep inducer. And it, it actually, um, high levels of melatonin in the brain are associated with REM sleep. As levels climb, we get more and more REM sleep. So I think the deficiency in melatonin is one factor in, in a loss of our REM sleep. Something I'm quite passionate about is um, is breath work. Um, obviously, that that can be part of a yoga practice, but also very separate, you know, completely separate, and, and just practiced alone. And breathing well can you know affect our sleep incredibly. That that carbon dioxide and that oxygen balance or ratio is is key in supporting sleep as well. Coming back to I guess dreaming and trying to get the dreams back, dreaming well, and therefore perhaps sleeping well. If we want to lay it out like that, are there Things that you recommend to clients are the, um, I'm thinking sort of, you know, in that run up to going to sleep into perhaps what's in your bedroom or, or techniques that you, that you recommend. Yeah, I, I, th- I think um, th- there's been a tendency to get a little bit uh, obsessive and impulsive about sleep and people try to control in great detail. That posture is driven by anxiety, which doesn't help with sleep. Um, so, yeah, there, there are things that we all know now, we've known for years, that we, we want to slow down at the end of the night. We want to uh, decrease our exposure to light, uh, particularly light that comes out of screens, which has a strong blue element. Blue light suppresses melatonin. Um, we have to slow before we can stop. So I, I think those things are obvious. The, the difficulty, I think, comes... Um, it's it's more psychological. So a lot of people who can't fall asleep will actually start to fall asleep and then immediately wake themselves up. There's a kind of discomfort with that letting go. Um, you know, in, in Greek mythology, Hypnos was the god of sleep. And uh, his brother in many of these stories was Thanatos, the god of death. And and um, it, it's a it's a kinship we see in, in many different cultures. Uh, in in, uh, in Judaism, the tradition I was brought up in, um, the Talmud, uh, one of the books says that sleep is one sixty second death. In many traditions, um, there, there's this recognition that it's that kind of profound letting go. So the willingness to let go depends also on our understanding of. If I let go, what's going to catch me? Who's going to catch me? So so all of this is, in my mind, to recognize, and I know this term is overused, but sleep is a spiritual process. Letting go of consciousness, letting go of awakened consciousness. Now, in in recent years, um, uh, in in the Western world, there's a, a... 
a new recognition of the potential psychiatric value of psychedelic drugs, right? I'm sure that's happening in the UK as well, but we're seeing a lot of research and we're now encouraging people to, to have uh, medically assisted psychedelic experiences. And uh, they seem to help significantly with depression, with pain, uh, with grief issues, um, death and dying issues. And, and it's a similar process. I think of psychedelics as intensified um, an intensified expansion of consciousness. It takes us into the dream. It takes us into the dream. So there's this question of our willingness um, to kind of step out of ordinary modes of thinking, our ordinary belief system, whether it's yoga, yoga nidra, all, all of these practices, or, or sleep. Sleep is and dreams are nature's way of expanding consciousness. Um, whatever it is that keeps somebody uh, from connecting with their deep sleep is also what's keeping them from connecting with their deepest self. And whatever work they have to do to get there is really worth doing. Now, when people start to fall asleep and wake up, or uh, very common with perimenopause issues, they wake up in the middle of the night. Um, It's important to consider that what wakes me up is not what keeps me up. Uh, now, there's also this common belief that a good sleeper closes their eyes and within five seconds, they're unconscious, they're dead to the world, they don't move, and then they wake up exactly eight hours later and they're totally refreshed. It's not like that. It's never been like that. It shouldn't be like that. Um, it is normal to wake up at night. Uh, because people believe it's not, when they awaken, they'll often hur- hurl an expletive at their waking. Like, oh, um, and of course, that triggers this process that enhances anxiety. Um, it's normal to wake up at night. It's normal to get up and use the bathroom. The survey researchers that in, in the U.S., at least, most people believe they can't sleep at night because they have to get up to use the restroom. Well, if you're getting up to pee and you're peeing for, I don't know, a minute or less, however long it takes, uh, and you can't sleep for the next two hours, it's not your bladder's fault, okay? You know, your bladder might wake you up, but it doesn't keep you up. What keeps us up is our belief systems and our reaction and our reactivity to unconsciousness. Um, so people spin out. Just knowing that it's normal to be awake at night is helpful. And you might know that we have research um, that, that shows that, that historically people would routinely be up in the middle of the night for an hour or two. They called it night watch. Um, it's a beautiful time to be awake, actually, in many spiritual traditions, in, in Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and Judaism. Um, there's a notion that this is a sacred time at night. Um, but it, it's a time when the world is darkened, and, and if we refrain from turning on a TV set, um, we're, we're faced with a great challenge if, of what was that Pogo who said we've met the enemy and she is us right um, we can see parts of ourselves in the middle of the night that, that I think are really worth seeing we can come to terms with with our great fears our you know spiritual questions uh, we can come to terms with the the, the fact that we're all going to die one day that this is a time limited experience so all of that is important in good sleep I think it's really interesting how you mentioned that kind of perspective of, of, of what we believe sleep should be. And as you say, Ruben, that, that idea that, you know, you should sleep eight hours solid. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's what we're taught. It's sometimes what we believe, what we've learned, whatever it might be. But I, I really, really want to 
reiterate that because I think our, pers- our perspective, uh, our perception of sleep perhaps needs to change as well at this point, you know, and this, this idea is everybody will sleep in a slightly different way as well and, and take rest in a slightly different way. But I, I do love this concept of we need to dream more. Um, and as you say, you know, this idea of we've, we're losing or we're not dreaming as much and that actually that is, that is restful, that is, that is part of our, our sleep process. It's restful and it's also challenging, right? Um, the, the data that we have uh, and, and its studies in the Western world suggest that, that most of our dreams are actually bad dreams. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're nightmarish, but they're challenging, you know, fear rises, concerns, uh, uh, confusion. And of course, then, then there are nightmares. Um, I, I've often wondered, like, if, if we take, take the group of people living on Earth how much of waking is good or bad? You know, I mean, there's a lot of suffering on this planet. It's a part of life. I mean, there's grace and joy and so on. Um, but bad, bad dream, challenging dreams are uh, um, bad dreams are a part of a good dream life. Just this challenging waking life is part of a good life. We're challenged with things and, and we grow. So the, the question, um, so this reminds me of, a, of, of an Einstein story where a newspaper reporter asked him, what's the most important question in life? Thinking he'd say something about gravity and speed of light. He said, the most important question is, is the universe friendly? (laughs) And and, and I think of that as, is the universe around us, is the world given, you know, how unfriendly it appears sometimes, and the universe within us. Um, There's an interesting parallel this was pointed out by, by Joe Campbell, a great psychologist years ago, in a book called The Inner Reaches of Outer Space. There's a really interesting parallel between what we believe lies way out there and what we believe lies deep inside. So um, if you go back to the, the 1920s and 30s and you look at fiction and early movies, um, there, there was all of this fear about these space aliens coming to, to steal our women and eat our children, right? You know, Mars needs whatever, I, I don't know. But, but these horrible things. And then beginning in the 30s, Rollo May and others began re-characterizing the unconscious. It went from the id to the inner child, mm-hmm. right? And in short order, E.T. shows up, <laughs> this beautiful spirit. And so... There's this profound connection between how we see the world at large and how we see ourselves. And this question of our willingness to, to, to trust, you know, can, can we consider that there's an intelligence in life? Let me add to, uh, there's something about people waking up at night. I, I, you know, spoken to a lot of women who wake up in a, you know, a flash of heat in the middle of the night. And, and there's a presumption, too, it's like waking up to pee, that that's it. Okay, my night is ruined. I'm going to be up the rest of the night. And, and I've also I've spoken to many women who have that problem, but many who don't. They wake up, and they're hot, and they're sweaty, and then they go back to sleep, and they're fine. They're fine. So those disruptions are natural, and they probably have an impact on sleep and dream quality. There's a transition into what we might call the crone that happens around that time. Um, again, there's a question of can we trust it and not pathologize you know, the, those experiences. 
There's that level of acceptance, isn't there? There's an acceptance, whether it's a hot flush or just waking up, whatever it might be. There's a, an acceptance of what's happening to you in that moment and going, this is all okay. This is absolutely fine. Perhaps there's a level of kind of um, surrendering to that, whatever's happened, that acceptance, and, and then sort of almost moving on, just sitting with it. But I think just echoing what you were saying about that idea of coming home do you, as a person, feel safe coming home? Do you feel you are able to let go and surrender and accept? So how, how do you, let me ask the two of you, how do you cultivate that? How do you encourage acceptance? It's a really interesting um, point because I think that I teach quite a lot of CBT um, to perimenopausal and menopausal women. And the idea that, it, it, first of all, I guess, it's sort of a about way of answering your question you know the, the idea that we wake routinely at night we wake multiple times at night and that's normal for many women is a bizarre concept they've always been told as you mentioned you need to sleep eight hours otherwise you're going to feel exhausted in the morning your day is going to be terrible and actually the acceptance of that often allows women to sleep mm-hmm. right. the yeah, so they, stop, they stop judging it they stop finding it Stop fighting it. It's going to happen. And then once it happens and you're aware it's happening and you normalise it, then it's okay. You know, the deeper question of what might keep them awake if that doesn't happen is going back to the sense of self and thinking about what is happening in your... what What's going on? Is the trauma? Is the things that are waking you and keeping you awake? And obviously that's when we go back to sort of thinking about how we focus on ourselves. What's going on? What's happening within us? That's obviously harder and deeper, but, right. but recognising there may be issues there that, that need to be worked on, I think, for, for me, is a really important... And, Caroline, you can you can answer it in a bit as well because you've got sort of that trauma experience. Yeah, but I th- for me, it's just... It, the, the acceptance comes from, um, I guess bravery there's a level of bravery needed to sit with feelings and thoughts and memories and you know sometimes working with breath doesn't feel safe for somebody so there's an element of invitational language is the way I like to teach and encouragement and and that reiteration of going whatever occurs is okay is valid this is you know this is your experience it's nobody else's and it's completely valid and so then there's that next step of saying well how can you look at that how can you feel that without any judgment because we're often our worst critics and so you know that I guess from a yoga philosophy point of view that's what yoga teaches us to do but in practice (laughs) you know this morning as I was trying to balance (laughs) you know uh, I'm feeling a bit wobbly that you know it doesn't it so it's it's a lifelong practice. All of this is, isn't it? It's it's a lifelong practice. Whether it's sleeping well and and looking at perhaps inner demons that are keeping us up at night. You know, I, I, I've taught in yoga centers around North America and in Germany and Austria, um, other places in Europe, France, and um, I had an interesting conversation with with a, um, a leader in one of the yoga schools some years ago. And uh, I'll never forget, we were talking about, we were talking about Hatha Yoga. And, and uh, she said to me, and this is a quote, Yoga Shmoga. And we started talking about how yoga originated as a practice to unify consciousness. The, the body was important, but a lot of people get stuck there. And, um, 
And, and subsequently, in talking to a, a Hindu scholar, um, we were talking about the chant Om, which I don't know about there, but here it's commonly written O-M. Yeah. As if it's two sounds. And, and this fellow said to me, well, it's three sounds. You're familiar with this? Ah, ooh, mm. And what I was told was in Sanskrit, uh, those three sounds were actually, uh, they were words uh, that referred to waking, dreaming, and sleeping. That the chant Om is a chant to, that, that resonates with whole consciousness. And whole consciousness is an integration of all three when I'm truly awake. And, and uh, there's really interesting literature too. Um, uh, Sri Aurobindo um, and, and his, um, one of his disciples, who's called Mother, wrote extensively about sleep. And, and, and there, there are similar discussions elsewhere in the literature that make no sense to us in the Western world. But she never slept. She, in the way, she, she would rest her body for three or four. She'd lie down on her back, but she, she never lost consciousness. And the truth is, she was always asleep. In any given moment, she was awake, asleep, and dreaming. She, she was in complete consciousness. She, she wasn't moving from one to the other and the other. She had woken up into all three. And uh, we, we saw this with um, um, Paramahansa Yogananda and other people. So it's interesting to recognize the spiritual underpinnings that really what we're trying to do is make peace with these two kinds of consciousness that, that we've marginalized in our world. We are so good at waking, right? <laughs> uh, and it's, waking is wonderful, but, but uh, when we, we mix in sleep and dreams, it's a whole other kind of consciousness. Um, and we, we get, you're, you're talking about CBT, and I, I practiced that for years. And in sleep medicine, CBTI, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, is considered the standard of care. And, and it is, but you know what? It's really limited. When we look at the literature, it, somewhere between 25 and 40% of people are not helped by that. Marina Benjamin, do you, do you, you know her work? So uh, a British writer who's written about insomnia. She's an example of somebody who just it, it didn't take for her. But um, we need to recognize that that cognitive work, waking thinking work, can take us right up to the edge, to the shoreline of sleep, to the waters of sleep, but it can't swim, can't swim. We, we have to be willing to let go of that waking consciousness and venture into a whole other medium of being the waters of sleep and dreams. And again, it comes back to, I, I guess, a question of courage or, or an act of faith or a willingness to trust uh, things that might frighten us, letting go. Yeah, and I think that fear, I think for many people, prevents um, that 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 being in touch with with who we are because there's a there's so much fear fearfulness around sleep in the western world these days and and hyper arousal you know that that sense that you're just you know on edge and there's a lot that keeps us on edge i guess you know like you were saying earlier about sort of being awake for so long in summer and just being kind of you know, aroused by screens, by light, by whatever it is. But certainly, and you must see this regularly, that hyper-arousal does a lot of damage, doesn't it? it it's it's part of the problem. I think hyper-arousal is, is maybe the major symptom of what I would consider an addiction to waking life. Mm. Again, most of us, you know, if we ask people why they sleep, it's because they want to be better waking people. Yeah. It's not because it's taking them somewhere. Yeah. And, and which brings up another issue connected to, to the, the spiritual dimensions of this. Um, in, in Western sleep medicine, there, there's a common 
belief that it's impossible to be aware of sleep. We can be aware of dreaming, obviously, because there, there are elements in dreams similar to waking. But Will DeMent, the, the great granddaddy of sleep medicine, wrote, it's impossible to be aware of sleep. That's not true. Mm. Uh, we've all been, there have been times when we've been asleep and we've known we've been asleep. Mm. Uh, probably more likely in lighter stages of sleep. But it's interesting to, to dispel that notion because we can be aware of sleep and it feels a whole lot like serenity or peace, stillness. There, there's a kind of joy to it, a, a subtle kind of bliss. But we can access that. And that's another good reason to sleep. It's not just getting knocked out to do repair work at night. Yeah. I'm going to end with those beautiful words, the kind of peace, stillness and serenity of sleep. That, that just sounds beautiful. Ruben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. We really appreciate it. It's something that so many people suffer with, you know, and, and battle with. And yet, actually, it's not just about the eight hours. And, and, and we really thank you for, for reiterating that. Thank you. I, I appreciate the conversation.